Mm -hmm. The other ironic thing that, you know, I talked a little bit about during the convoy is uh, one of my brothers is a police sergeant. And I have two nephews who are in policing and I have many friends who are cops who are mortified with what was going on in Ottawa. But they also said, now you see what we've been talking about. This is what they're doing to policing. They're turning it into a security force for politicians. It's completely uh, politicized mm -hmm. or the term mm -hmm. that I hear often is de-policing. And, you know, in the case of my brother, he says, that's why I'm retiring because I'm mm -hmm. sick and tired of hearing politicians call me up and think that, oh, I work for them. There's somebody on their, their street that they don't like that they want us to visit. That's how authoritarian the government had uh, had become. I never thought I would have saw that here. You know, we mm -hmm. always think mm -hmm. that's going to happen somewhere else, right? right? Like all this uh, hyperbolic uh, scenarios that we hear about Bitcoin, why you need it. Um, here, it's just an investment. But, you know, it's really over there that it's freedom money and the freedom convoy uh, proved that no it's freedom money in the in the western world as well the only money that was capable of getting there was bitcoin right like that's if you're going to stand up against an existing institutional framework you need a form of money that is outside of that institutional framework Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. 
Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Benjamin Dichter, welcome to the What Is Money Show. It's good to talk to you, brother. It's great to have you, man. Uh, this has been a long time coming. And just by way of quick introduction, you are the author of Honking for Freedom. Uh, you're also one of the main spokespeople for the Freedom Convoy, which was the largest peaceful protest in Canadian history and the longest convoy in human history, stretching over 70 miles in length. Um, wow, what a what a thing, right? I, what an event. I never thought we would have seen something like that. Um, maybe for my Especially out of Canadians, right? Especially yeah. out of Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you freedom loving Canadians, you yeah. really really out Americaning us. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> Once we finally did. <laughs> um let's start with just a little bit of you, about you, your background, how where you came from, who you are, and how you got involved with the Freedom Convoy and ultimately writing a book about it. Well, why don't I start with, um, there's an endorsement on the back of the book, which I think is important, which will set the stage. And then I'll go back to my, because I'm not, I don't talk about myself all that much. I'm not important, but this was, uh, this is the endorsement on the back of the book. And it reads, the Canadian trucker protest in Ottawa attracted tremendous national and international attention and was simultaneously demonized by then- Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his cronies in the legacy media, the minions in the CBC, first and foremost amongst them. What really happened, Benjamin J. Dichter integrally evolved from the beginning, lets his readers in on the story, story one that all Canadians should know, Jordan B. Peterson. And mm. um, that really sets the stage for what happened and hopefully how the world is going to look at it in the future. How did I get involved? I don't know, man. Maybe it's a simulation, right? <laughs> the stars were in alignment. You know, Elon Elon, or um, Scott Adams might be right about this whole simulation theory, Nick Bostrom's theory. Uh, I grew up in Toronto, and uh, I grew up middle-class family. My uh, dad was a teacher. My mom was a paralegal. So I was. Uh, my dad was a business teacher and computer teacher. So... Uh, I grew up with the benefits of that, of having a computer by my side since I was three years old. Started with a pet emulator mm. and then a VIX-20 and a Commodore 64 and all that sort of stuff. So that's why I'm comfortable with tech. That's a big that's advantage. Awesome. Yeah, huge, huge. That's why Bitcoin for me to understand was pretty easy. Hmm. Um, so I grew up middle class, uh, ended up graduating. Uh, when I When I finished school, I became a gemologist and diamond grader. 
did that for a few years, then invented a product for motorcycles. I always had the, that entrepreneurial spirit and patented, patented it in the US, learned how to do my own patent. And one thing led to another that, you know, evolved in me to working for Harley Davidson, then moving on to being a corporate sales director for another company and uh, branching off, starting my own little business. And it was on a university campus. Uh, it was a, a graphics shop, print shop, and we had another location that did vehicle wrapping. And I saw the cultural changes and shifts in real time on uh, the university campus. The name of it was Ryerson University. They've now changed the name because the name was offensive. And I could see it started really 2013, the shift and the encroachment of postmodernism, that subjectivist worldview, oppressor versus oppressed. Mm -hmm. It became like a cancer. And I could see you know, in our, the nature of our business, we had a university student that would come out of high school for first year and we would get to know them year after year when they're doing their portfolios and their work and whatever. And I saw which with each graduating class, they got progressively uh, more extreme in their rhetoric about victimization, their rhetoric about how miserable they are and the world is. And ultimately, I just had to get out of that atmosphere and mm -hmm. uh, ended up you know, selling it and moving on and starting podcasts. And a few years later, here I am at the center of the world, uh, doing this, trying to be the spokesperson, trying to keep everybody focused on peace and love and freedom uh, at this convoy. Because I had during COVID, my uh, I had gotten my trucking license. Remember that entrepreneurial spirit? Mm. My brother is a police officer, was retiring. And uh, he said, why don't you get your trucker license? So what are you crazy? He said, no, 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 I'm going to do it too. Let's do it together. Maybe when I retire, we'll do a side business together or something. And so I went and I got my license and then COVID hit. The restrictions in Canada were unbearable. And my brothers just said to me, hey, why don't you, um, let's, let's buy a truck for you and you know I'll have a truck and we can get away from the craziness and go to the United States and at least get away from the nonsense and go for dinner and have some time to to get to know each other because he's a biological brother. And uh, I only got to know him later in life. So uh, that's a little bit of my background. Very cool. Um, so this Freedom Convoy, like we, we heard about it in the U.S. through somewhat <laughs> through yeah. to mainstream media. I guess I heard more about it through Twitter. Um, what was the significance of this event? Like, what, I guess, what was the, what actually catalyzed it originally? And then what did it, as we said earlier, it became the biggest peaceful protest in Canadian history. How did it start and how did it get to that point? Well, the, the origin really comes to our, our structure of government in Canada, which is very, very different. And I got to tell you, after going through the COVID years, I have, I mean, I always respected uh, the American Constitution. Uh, now I have my respect is it's, it's an unbelievable document and very important. And it's mm. what we don't have here. Why? Mm. Because, um, you know, everybody talks about the importance of states' rights. Well, we're the example of it because in Canada, because the federal government has such overarching powers over all the provinces and ultimately municipalities. Mm. Because of that, we had no place to go. 
So mm-hmm. if you were in Ontario, you didn't like the restrictions. Uh, if you go to Moose Jaw, you're going to get the same thing. So you really, we were all trapped in this massive landmass and we couldn't do anything about it. Whereas in the United States, you have the freedom to say, okay, I don't like the authoritarianism of the New York government. I'm just going to go to Florida. Mm-hmm. You had that option. We didn't have that option. Mm. So that really, that that fundamental basis of Canada is what ultimately led uh, to the Freedom Convoy. There was a convoy a few years ago, once the current government got into power, and really put the screws to the energy sector. You saw people in Western Canada having their businesses decimated, uh, you know, all the climate change hysteria. And I'm not saying, I'm not going to debate climate data. I'm just talking about hysteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, they had a convoy, which was, I think, 2018 or 19, I can't remember. Uh, it ultimately went to, um, Ottawa made a statement, but politicians got involved. They watered it down. They caused division amongst the people and it just ended and everybody went home. Well, things got progressively worse because of COVID and all these restrictions, all these businesses out West that had been decimated. It's now businesses across Canada that were decimated and people didn't have options. So a bunch of truckers in uh, uh, in British Columbia, in Alberta, where, which are in the West, and uh, a couple of truckers in Ontario all started connecting with each other over TikTok. And I think TikTok was the primary platform that they used, ironically. <laughs> and they said, we need to, uh, we need to do something. We need to have a convoy. And they decided, if I remember the dates, they told me correctly around January 11th or 12th or something that they were going to go, uh, have a convoy and bring as many people as possible and descend on Ottawa to try to have their voices heard, uh, for what they believed was the first time in many, many years. Hmm. And from there, it snowballed, I assume? like, uh, Yeah, it was. Uh, so I got a call on, uh, and I explained this in the book, I got a call in the middle of January from Tamara, who I had known uh, for several years. She had gotten involved in this convoy and started a GoFundMe campaign. She called me and a couple of other people I know and said, uh, yeah, our donations are going through the roof. I don't remember what it was at. It was at like $150,000 within like a day or a couple of days or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she said to me, you know, I, um, uh, I need somebody who I trust, who can be a spokesperson who understands media. Cause I was media trained in one of my previous jobs. And, um, I said, yeah, sure, sure. I absolutely I'll be there. And at that point she didn't even know I had a truck. I said to her, by mm. the way, <laughs> I'm an owner operator. And she said, shut up, get out. Really? Why? And I explained to her what I explained to you. Yeah. And uh, it was just kind of, you know, again, either the stars are in alignment or it's just a simulation. It all worked (laughs) out. And um, so I basically dropped everything. I finished some podcasts I was editing that day and got them ready to upload and release and shifted all my energy towards this convoy and thinking, okay, they have a GoFundMe. There's a bunch of people all over the place. We need to figure a way to message this to people that it'll be effective uh, it'll bring as many people across the political spectrum on board, and that it's messaging that the government will not be able to um, to push back against or be very difficult for them, right? Right. 
And I thought back to being a teenager and going to Grateful Dead concerts or Fish concerts, even Dylan concerts, that whole mm. vibe. Uh, Grateful Dead was the primary thing in my mind of mm. peace and love and freedom and everybody from different backgrounds mm. uh, would come together and just focus on loving each other. And uh, I thought we need that without the drugs would be perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what we need. And uh, put together a little bit of messaging strategies, figure out how to how to get this message out there. And I went to town, started working on that because we had two weeks until people would be arriving uh, in Ottawa. So I had to get the message out as much as possible. And I exercised every connection I had through alternative media, some in regular media as well, uh, to try to you know promulgate this um, our intentions of mm. which were just two ending the ma the uh, mandates, the vaccine mandates, and ending the ArriveCan app, which was a data tracking app that the government had released mm -hmm. that we would now have to use to enter into Canada. Mm. And as I explained, you know, when I was on Tucker Carlson, that I, I only had to use it once because the Freedom Convoy started and then I broke my ankle and I was out of the truck for months. But I drove up to the booth and I held my phone up for the first time with the QR code, which was really, I'm a freedom guy, an individual uh -huh, uh -huh. goes against every grain in my being. And I went to show it to the border agent and he said, no, 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 I don't need to see that. I'm like, so I don't need it. He said, no, 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 it's okay. We, the way the system's designed is when your truck drives up to the booth, we can already detect your phone and your, your data pops up on my screen. Wow. And I thought to myself, being kind of a techie, uh, what happens when they decide they want to put that in all government offices right. or police cruisers or just random places all over the cities? Now you have the surveillance state. Uh -huh. And this is a problem. This is a really big problem. And um, yeah, so we focused on those issues going into Ottawa, despite the many, many smears coming from the government and from the legacy media, which is funded by the government in Canada. That's now how it works here. Mm. Um, so it was, an, it was essentially for me, it was a PR war with the legacy media and the government is what I got myself involved in. Wow. Good way to start off the year. Yeah. Well, um, doing very important work though, right? Someone's got to take a stand when uh, coercion is being systematized. So you mentioned like individual state rights in the U.S. basically giving Americans more options. And that's something I hadn't thought about. I actually didn't know that Canada was was different in that regard. Um, and there was a lot of interstate movement during the entire COVID saga as people were basically there was an exodus out of California and New York into yeah. Texas, Florida, Tennessee, places like this. Um, so that it's just an interesting angle. I wanted to com like, just echo back to say that that does give us a lot more optionality and that's a very interesting take something we would want. Um, I guess in more nation state constructions, right? They, they, this, the, in to have more options internally is a big bulwark against authoritarianism. That's what I'm trying to say. Now the freedom convoy itself did it spark other convoys around the world? So my understanding was it kind of started in Canada and then other places in the world started to, to emulate it to some extent. And was that perhaps 
but I guess first is that accurate or not? And then second, secondarily, um, to what extent was the seizing of bank accounts instrumental in breaking up the convoy? And do you think it was that was done to prevent this thing from spreading like kind of a, like a, a more of a global movement? Yeah. So a couple of things. So first let's start within Canada and then branch out. Um, we got wind at some point in uh, one of the many meetings. It was, people have to understand it was not formalized. There's no formal board meetings. It was chaos all over the place. We're always plugging holes, trying to keep people safe, ensure people had fuel, ensure, you know, we were in communication with the Ottawa police and the city of Ottawa, even though they don't want to admit that now, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that emergency vehicles could still navigate the city and all that sort of stuff. But we did find out at some point, um, once we had some success, that there were all these other protests that started popping up all over the country. And there was famously the border closure in Coots, Alberta. And uh, at some point, we're told there was uh, up to 120 points of entry into the United States that were f- that were seized. Now, why is that important? Because they try to paint us as the fringe minority, which, boy, did that blew up in their face. And the reason that blew up is because, I'll give you the example of uh, Nova Scotia, the premier, which is the equivalent of a governor here, um, he passed a law just by decree that if you participate in any sort of convoy, it was, a, if I remember correctly, a $10,000 fine. It was also a fine if you donated to the convoys GoFundMe. It was a fine if you were on the side of the road, clapping for trucks. Everything was a fine. And by the way, that was a conservative. So I, I don't buy into the left, white, you know, conservatives, good, mm-hmm. liberals, bad. No, they all suck. Mm-hmm. And so people got really upset in the Maritimes, which is where Nova Scotia is. So many of those truckers had family that were in the fisheries industry that worked in the ports. So you know what they did? <laughs> they got in their tugboats, they went out in the ocean, and they blocked the port of entry into Nova Scotia and said, how do you like that? Hmm. Because it wasn't just truckers, man. It started with truckers. It was farmers, truckers, people in the fisheries industry. Hmm. It was tradespeople. It was contractors, but it was also hedge fund managers and hmm. teachers and working professionals. We were everyone. And that's why when they tried to paint us as a fringe major- fringe minority, it blew up in their faces because mm. everybody knew everyone. Everybody knew somebody mm. that was either involved or supporting it. The only silos that live in this world that they try to uh, reject objective facts were the people who live in you know downtown Ottawa, downtown Toronto, maybe downtown Vancouver. But the rest of the country was all unified. It was an amazing moment for that reason. The seizing of bank accounts uh, is was a very concerning issue, but uh, that actually didn't lead to the end of the protest. And I think that's what they got frustrated about. You know, mm-hmm. when, when my bank account was frozen, I found out uh, trying to process <laughs> Uber Eats, I had to eat something. <laughs> uh, food wasn't plentiful. And I went to order Uber Eats and all of a sudden my credit card didn't work and kept trying and trying and trying. And I went on to my online banking, I actually started with my corporate account. And I logged on and my where my bank history normally is was wiped out as though I'd never used it. And there was a message saying that when you start to use your account, your transactions will appear here. 
So when people say they froze our bank accounts, no, they froze all our financial instruments, credit cards, bank accounts, lines of credit, corporate lines of corporate credit, anything that is associated with your name, uh, because the government was trying to starve us. The mm -hmm. government was trying to kill us. They were targeting us. And, uh, you know, I was the one, I'm pretty positive. I, I love, I believe in positive energy and positive vibes and always, you know, trying to look at the, the, the good in everything, in every mm -hmm. situation. And I had a lot of people calling me, messaging me, freaking out. And many times I just had to tell people, don't worry, just give it time. Uh, this can't go on. A government can't operate uh, indefinitely behaving this way. Just be patient. Don't react. Mm. Just relax. Everybody, you know, kind of calm down. And I think that frustrated them even further because people just were still on the street, still protesting, still in their trucks, <laughs> you know, like uh, the Wolf of, Wolf of Wall Street. I'm not leaving. Right. <laughs> Some of them really took that to heart. And um, so the government ultimately uh, turned it into a banana republic and they, br they brought the violence. And I remember the last few lines of truckers and protesters that were kettled. Now, if you remember, I had a bra broken ankle, so I was in, stuck in a wheelchair. What does that mean, kettled? Uh, kettled when all the police come and they, uh, they surround all the protesters and usually beat them and then mass arrest them. Wow. Right? Okay. The strategy that they used. And, you know, one of my my closest friends, he's like a brother to me, Salman Sima. Uh, you find him on Twitter. He's an Iranian refugee. He came here because he was arrested by the Iranian regime because he was part of the student protest in the Green Revolution that was fighting for greater freedoms for people in Iran. They wanted an end to the theocracy. And Salman was with me the entire time in Ottawa. And he, he kept calling it out. He said, they're going to put a barrier here. They're going to put a barrier there. They're going to move a police cruiser there. They're going to come in from this side and that side because he had so much experience with the Iranian regime mm. beating down its citizens. Well, that's what the Canadian government did. And you know how many times they reached out to us just to talk to us, despite the many times genuinely I invited them, said, come for coffee, come talk to us to chiefs of staff, people that are linked to Trudeau, to everybody. Just have a little bit of courage. Be a leader. I hear hashtag leadership all the time, right? Come for coffee. We have Tim Hortons for you. Let's talk. Let's talk it out. Nothing. Zero. None of them had the courage just to engage in a conversation. They went from doing absolutely nothing and each bureau or each bureaucracy in the government blaming each other they went from that to send in the tanks. And there was somebody in the, I think it was the Bank of Montreal CEO, if I'm not mistaken, one of the big banks, uh, told the Minister of Finance, why don't you just get a tank? Send in a tank. And then other ministers are saying, yeah, can't we just get tanks in there? Like, that's why there was a meme on Twitter a few months ago when that was released uh, of, you know, Tank Man and the Canadian government because. That's how stupid and incompetent they are. I said on Russell Brand's interview, our, our our political leaders have gotten to the point that they're so stupid and incompetent that they're dangerous. And hmm. that's what we showed with the Freedom Convoy. Wow. That, you know, it just, every time I reflect on that episode, it blows me away that a peaceful protest 
ended in the seizure of private property. Like the government's express purpose is to preserve peace such that people can trade and, and have property interest in things and create wealth. And yet this, the government basically contradicted its entire purpose in this episode, right? It's beating peaceful protesters and seizing their property. It's like, it's an anti, what the, what the government's express philosophic purpose is, it, it is doing the opposite in this situation. That's right. And it was so peaceful that man, we had uh, hot tubs, three saunas we built a soup kitchen for the homeless the Sikh community you know those white supremacists they came down and a couple of them owned restaurants so they brought the containers so when they were barbecuing or making samosas for people they could actually package the food and was stacking it up if you were in ottawa and you were walking around around the bouncy castles or you went to a dance party late at night uh, in front of the stage, you could wake up in the morning, somebody would give you coffee, somebody would be cooking breakfast, somebody else would be making a barbecue for uh, wow. for lunch. And it was like that for three weeks. It was uh, it was just such a beautiful- It's like a music festival with no drugs. It, that's exactly yeah. what it was. It was beautiful. It was absolutely that's great. Beautiful. How did it resolve then? So the bank accounts were seized, not only, or as you said, all the financial instruments were frozen for both the protesters and the contributors, I think. Some of them, yeah, apparently. Some of them, yeah. Um, How, how did this, how did the, the Freedom Convoy resolve itself? I assume this was a pretty significant blow. Um, Where did, where did things go from there and how did it finally end? Well, I mean, the first chapter of my book actually start on the day where all of the crackdown started. And um, you're going to love it, I promise, because it's all the good stories. It's not just the bad stuff. Um, But ultimately, they came in, they rounded everybody up, they did mass arrests, they started with trying to arrest the leaders who were on the street. I was in a wheelchair, so I was in a hotel, so it's not really a a threat to them sort of thing. And uh, they all our bank accounts were already frozen for several days. Uh, it went to the Senate because we have uh, we have House of Commons in the Senate. It seemed to be there was no political will for the Senate to verify or authenticate, however you want to call it, the Emergency Measures Act, our equivalent of martial law. So the government just dropped it uh, the following Monday. Uh, our accounts all came online. Most of us came online within a day or so. Some people actually had, you know, like, there's long COVID. Well, there's mm. long long bank account freezing mm. for some people Makes that sense. went two or three months. COVID probably causes that too. <laughs> exactly. Everything's COVID, right? <laughs> um, so that's, uh, but then at the same time, we were uh, also welcomed with a class action lawsuit that is now swelled to $450 million that came from people who are affiliated with Justin Trudeau's uh, Liberal Party and people who work for the government. It's just harassment, lawfare harassment. And uh, this is the sacrifice you got to make when you fight for freedom. But our accounts mm-hmm. got online. Everybody was uh, was either, most people were arrested, catch and release. Uh, many of them weren't. There are many people who faced, I mean, they're total BS charges, mischief. You know, mm-hmm. like the, mm-hmm. the other ironic thing that, you know, I talked a little bit about during the convoy is uh, one of my brothers is a police sergeant. And I have two nephews who are in policing and I have many friends who are cops. 
who were mortified with what was going on in Ottawa, but they also said, now you see what we've been talking about. This is what they're doing to policing. They're turning it into a security force for politicians. It's completely uh, politicized, mm-hmm. or the term mm-hmm. that I hear often is depolicing. And you know, in the case of my brother, he says, that's why I'm retiring, because I'm mm-hmm. sick and tired of hearing politicians call me up and think that, oh, I work for them. There's somebody on their, na- their street that they don't like that they want us to visit. That's how authoritarian the government had uh, had become. But anyway, so once everybody was uh, moved out, then the convoy was done. I stuck around until March 12th. So while every the kettling was going on, my lawyers were telling me to leave. I was fighting with them. No, I want to stay. There's no, they're not going to arrest me. You know, I'm a guy in a wheelchair. But anyways, they convinced me. So I went to stay with a friend in Ottawa until March 12th. And I spent the entire week uh, once the kettling was was done. I was on the phone with lawyers like this, you know, mm-hmm. one lawyer here, one lawyer here. Mm-hmm. And then you're trying to prevent um, any warrants for my arrest and other people like the government was behaving. I never thought I would have saw that here. You know, we mm-hmm. always think mm-hmm. that's going to happen somewhere else. Right. Right. Like all this uh, hyperbolic uh scenarios that we hear about bitcoin why you need it um here it's just an investment but you know it's really over there that it's freedom money and the freedom convoy uh, proved that no it's freedom money in the in the western world as well right and there was you said i think 10 million dollars raised from contributors as private contributors for the freedom convoy yeah, well, actually, there was a total of $23 million raised okay. so when, uh, in three weeks. And wow. just to give you a little bit of a metric, because Canada is much smaller than the United States, that's much more significant here. Yeah. Uh, in order to get Justin Trudeau uh, elected leader of his party and then elected, that cost in terms of donations and funding and all that, that cost $40 million right. over four years, right? Small country, it's only $40 right. million. right. We raised 23 and change million dollars, including the Bitcoin, in three weeks. Wow. Incredible. And the reason was because that money wasn't money. That was a vote. That was a that's vote. Right. Money and is a vote. no opposition. And that's why they funded us. And that's why the political class became so scared and reacted so harshly. And the other no. thing is, you know, I've, I've only spoken this a couple of times. I'm not terribly partisan. I got friends across, like I'm, I don't like the labels. I think we mm-hmm. all, I mentioned on Le, Michaela Peterson's podcast that I think we all can fit within this triangle where I like the goals of the left. I like the systems of the right. And I like the freedoms of the libertarians mm-hmm. and all of us will plot in there somewhere. And because of that, I had people that were affiliated or connected to the liberal party, Justin Trudeau's party talking to me during the convoy right privately off the record telling me you know kind of what's going on here and there because they uh, inferred to me that there was a coalition forming within trudeau's government which got up to 30 some odd people and um because of that it was gaining momentum and we think that's why they caused the emergency measures act and also remember this became you know you asked earlier about um how it expanded globally there were convoys mimicking what we did uh-huh. in 30 plus countries around the world i, I saw because they were contacting me through twitter 
Um, Jordan Peterson, who you know as well, uh, explained that when he started talking to the Dutch farmers, they used the Freedom Convoy as a template and they saw the things that went wrong and tried to, to correct for them so they wouldn't get shut down. And that's why they still have regular protests going on around the world. Sorry, sorry, mm -hmm. regular protests going on in uh, the Netherlands. So uh, this was a big embarrassment to the bureaucracy. And I right. think that's why they uh, reacted so harshly. And so the $23 million raised, most of that was seized or frozen. Was it ever returned? Like how, how was that resolved? Oh, no, no, no. It was. <laughs> so first GoFundMe, um, they transferred $1.4 million, I think is the approximate number. And the rest they returned. And there's different reasons, different takes on why that happened. They returned to the contributors. Returned to the contributors. First, okay. they said they were gonna get they were gonna take the money and donate to a cause of their choice. <laughs> and then Florida man Ron DeSantis pipes up and says, uh, that sounds like criminal fraud. I think we might have to investigate it. And they responded with, Okay, no, 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 no. <laughs> we'll give it back to the donors, right? <laughs> so then those people got their money back. And uh, we, one of us, uh, I think it was either Chad or Chris, I can't remember which one of them, uh, and don't get angry at me, guys, if I get it confused, but oh. one of them set up the Give, Send, Go uh, a, mm. a campaign there. And within the first 12 hours, we had, I don't know, $6 million in there. And within a couple of days, it got up to $12 million. So when it got to $9 million, this is the second fundraiser, the Ontario Premier, again, a conservative, so this is not left or right, um, sought an injunction in Ontario Superior Court to make that money illegal if it comes into uh, any financial institution in Canada. So therefore, all monies that were transferred, the $1.4 and the first transfer, which I think was only $3.5 or something like that. I wasn't the treasurer. The treasurer would know this. Hmm. Um, that was all seized for different reasons. And there's a classic class action lawsuit that was put into escrow. The only money that got into the hands of truckers was Bitcoin. Because mm. we managed to raise, if I remember correctly, it was approximately 21 Bitcoin, 20 Bitcoin and change. Mm -hmm. uh, at that, the value at that point was $1.2 million, just under that, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I always had love for the Bitcoin community, as we uh, you know discussed before. We sometimes mm -hmm. get a bad rap because of Twitter, mm -hmm. but I couldn't believe the amount of love and support that came out of the Bitcoin community. And they weren't doing it for themselves; they were doing it just because it was right and for freedom right. and to protect these guys that were freezing for three weeks. Don't forget, yeah. the government tried to seize the fuel so the trucks couldn't refuel. So people who had their families in their trucks would be freezing at night. But the Bitcoin community went out, raised money, and they ended up distributing through paper wallets and a lot of time investing and training people. This is a wallet. This is Bitcoin. This is how mm -hmm. you, you download it, whatever. They managed to get 800,000 and change uh, to the truckers that were there the longest. And it was so successful that Caribou, who... Um, I, uh, BTC Sessions was on what Bitcoin did and talked about this. Caribou was um, raided by 15 police officers, by the RCMP, which is federal, and the OPP, which is provincial, to seize his seed phrases 
and the remaining Bitcoin, which was a couple hundred thousand dollars, a few hundred thousand dollars. And Carib has never been in trouble with the law. He's a very straight stand-up guy, a typical Bitcoiner. And he didn't know what to do. He just, you know, he got scared. Okay, fine. Here's a seed phrase. They had a warrant for his computer, for all his phones, even his podcast mic they took. Um, that's that's how authoritarian and embarrassed they were. So that's the remaining Bitcoin, which has now been uh, remitted to the escrow agent um, awaiting a decision in this class action suit that has yet to be certified and will probably drag on for years on end if it if it gets certified, which I don't know how. Wow, what a nightmare. Um, well, I guess suffice it to say that the only money that was capable of getting there was Bitcoin, right? Like that's, if you're going to stand up against an existing institutional framework, you need a form of money that is outside of that institutional framework. Um, you know, and it's, it's a vote, right? And that's, um, quite a telling story. Okay. So, Let's pivot here a little bit, because obviously we're talking about the the nature of money and how it affects the outcome of this this political event. Um, let me just ask you, Benjamin, the namesake of the show, what is money to you? To me, don't think I'm too cheesy. Uh, I really do like Michael Saylor when he talks about money as energy, that it's your mm-hmm. stored energy. For me, uh, money is your passion. It's a way to store your passion because you invest Mm. your blood, sweat, and tears into projects or businesses or creating art or creating anything. Mm -hmm. And how do we store our creative energy nowadays? We store it in the form of money. Mm. And I think what the, the problem that we have now is the right of your creative energy is exclusively with governments that are increasingly authoritarian. Bitcoin allows us to get off that uh, that crazy town, that crazy train, mm. and it allows us to encapsulate our own personal creativity and our passions, and allows us to self-custodial it entirely that no one else can touch it. If your seed phrase is in your head, along with your creativity, no one in the world has access to it. It Mm -hmm. is for me, real money. And yes, I I know the technical terms of the technical definitions of hard money and soft money. I get Mm -hmm. that, but Mm -hmm. I'm talking abstractly for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Money in itself is, it's the essence of what we try to accomplish with our life in a Mm -hmm. way that we, we can measure it. Now, that's not always the case. It's not, we don't always do things for money. We get Mm -hmm. that, but it is. It, it, when it, when Bitcoin shifts over into money, uh, sorry, when money shifts over into Bitcoin, that's the true essence of what money should be. Fiat is bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is money. Mm. That's how I look at it. Uh, that's very original. I've never heard anyone put it like that. But, you know, in an ideal world, we are all turning our passions into our paychecks, right? We're doing what we like to do in service of others. And money is, yeah, quite simply the the medium that allows us to be able to do that, right? And to the extent that a money is seizable or can be deactivated or turned off, 
like that would be equivalent to being able to extinguish someone's passion or, or, you know, the, the energy or favors they'd accumulated from others by serving them. And so yeah. I think it, I think it's a great way to frame and it. Not, and not only, I mean, we also have to remember, not everybody in the world has the luxury of being able to monetize their passions. And I get mm -hmm. that. There's many people yeah. that hear that and say, well, you got, I work at Walmart. That's not my sure. passion. And I, and I get that. But your dreams are. Yeah. The things that you want to do in your dreams. Right. Uh, the vacation you're saving up for That's or right. the business exactly. you're saving up to start, right? It's It requires money. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Element. Element is a delicious electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. Element contains the ideal electrolyte ratio. It's got 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Element has no junk. It's got no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS at all. Element is perfectly suited for people that are on a keto, low carb, or paleo diet. And as someone that eats a very heavy meat diet and does a lot of intermittent fasting, I simply love this stuff. So go to drinkelement.com slash breedlove. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T 
com slash breedlove and make sure to get a free sample pack with your first purchase. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. And that's part of the reason I've become so passionate about Bitcoin. And I've done what everybody else has done. Uh, you know, I got into Bitcoin just because I'm, I'm a techie, grew up with computers. Uh-huh. I thought it was interesting. So experimented, learned, took me like a year of learning just before I even got any Bitcoin, but I finally did. You get it, you start to use it. It you, it takes a while to conceptualize it. Even though you're using it, you don't really get it. I think that's mm-hmm. what people have a lot of problems with. And then what do you do? You go down the clown coin rabbit hole and like, oh, let's try all of these things. And then you realize... <laughs> You learn some harsh lessons. I like how you're self-censoring you realize... and calling them clown coins instead of shit coins, but please go on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be polite. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so then you eventually, we all come back to the realization that no, 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 this is the protocol that is going to grant us our true freedom. You get, people yeah. are going to play. I don't like casinos. That's why I did the clown coin thing for a while. And I decided, okay, I, it's just a casino. It's not mm-hmm. what I was told it was. That's right. And uh, I've spent so I've spent a lot of time in many of these Bitcoin uh, spaces. I go as regularly as I can for newbies, whatever, uh, to try to help orange pill people of all demographics. I go on a radio show regularly in Toronto. Uh, shout out to Mark Petroni on AM 960. His demographic are all ba- baby boomers. And I remember after maybe we did five or six episodes, he was starting getting emails saying, hey, get that Bitcoin guy back on. It's it's interesting what he's talking about. I don't really understand, but I'm reading about it in the newspaper or online or whatever. So I've, I've, that's where I put my passion for Bitcoin is to try to orange peel people of my parents' demographic mm. and with some success. And, the, you know, the Freedom Convoy, this is why for me it was so important to put a couple of chapters about the Bitcoin story in this book is because I'm hoping, and I explained this to to Jordan when he did the endorsement, I'm hoping this book, the two chapters on Bitcoin, that this will be the archive of the first real scenario in the Western world where Bitcoin truly granted people financial freedom from an authoritarian government. It proved itself. Mm-hmm. We all heard the story for years. Well, it actually became reality. And because of that, like we all, I'm sure you have people like this too, people in our lives and our families, they just don't get Bitcoin, no matter how much you talk about it. They just don't want to hear it. And I knew a lot of those people who are now Bitcoin holders because they saw what happened in the convoy. They saw that that's the only money that got to the truckers. They don't know how. They don't understand mm-hmm. how it works. They don't right. know what a blockchain is. No clue. But they just know that, oh, I can send money directly from a phone to phone and nobody controls it. Okay, I'm on board with that. 
Bingo. You know, I often <laughs> recite on the show that pain is information, right? That people either need to feel the pain or what's more cost effective is if you can see someone else experiencing a pain point and resolving it with something like Bitcoin, and then you could learn from someone else's uh, pain, basically. There's a uh, there's a phrase I learned many years ago from a YouTuber my ex was friends with, uh, and it says, the value of positive feedback trends towards zero the more you get it. I think that's a way of articulating the same thing, right? Good <laughs> okay. negative yeah. feedback has infinitely more value than hearing you're wonderful all the time, right? Right, 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 right. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's what informs us, right? It's right. it's a signal that something is not working and so we have to adapt or change either the circumstances right. or ourselves to reestablish fitness. <laughs> and it's, that's why there's I have this paradoxical kind of viewpoint that as someone that's really trying to orange pill the world here, I actually think the state is going to orange pill more people than anyone. Oh, right. They they just did it in the convoy. Exactly. Exactly. They're just going to keep engaging in this overreach in whatever form of authoritarianism, oppression, asset seizure that it comes in and people will observe and they will learn Uh, just as you, just as you just described there. Okay. You mentioned offline to me that you watched the documentary, the money, it's either the money changers or the money masters. I think it's, it's, I've seen it with both titles, but I remember it as the money changers. And when I just uh, searched it, that's what came up. Can you tell me a little bit about, I actually haven't seen this. So could you tell me a little bit how that shaped your views on money? Yeah. You know, I was um, 17, uh, maybe about, it was, I think when I was 15 years old or something like that, I decided I'm not going to use television as the idiot box. I'm only going to watch television if I'm learning something, right? So if I'm reading, I'm reading, but if I'm watching TV, I got to learn something. Mm. And so you go down the, 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 the um, documentary rabbit hole, you start learning everything, all that sort of stuff. And I came across this documentary. um, It was a documentary series, but I saw it in one uh, sitting. I found one file of it. I think I, I think I pirated it, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) I downloaded it from a a bulletin board. Uh, But anyways, uh, it is Bill Still who did this investigation into uh, the central bank, the central banking system, and the history of the central banking system. And uh, it's really fascinating. It goes back all. He goes back to you know the invention of when the first dollars were conceptualized in Europe, like actual dollar, or it was called initially the taller. Uh, he talks about the origins of the tally stick. Mm. Um, which, you know, we discussed before in this intrinsic value myth mm. um, that the tally stick kind of proves that. And uh, it was just fascinating. I was 17 years old. I binge watched it for a weekend and it always stuck with me for some reason. It was always in the back of my head. Um, part of the, you know, I was never a great saver of money when I was a kid. Yeah, as in the motorcycles and cars and, you know, like it was... Kind of the black sheep of the family is going out with girls all the time, whatever, that sort of thing, right? I was a teenager like anybody else. Yeah, most kids aren't good savers. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. But it always it always stuck with me in the back of my head that like, is, is that why that coupled with inflation, is it just uh, there's a problem with me or is there a broader problem 
this mechanism of saving, it just it's an uphill battle for most people because of our central banking system. Uh, that's the and the freedom argument aside, that's a whole other argument. It was always in the back of my mind. That's why when when Bitcoin came on my radar, which was in I heard it once the term in like 2019 or 2009 or 2010 Mm -hmm. uh, on some forum, but I didn't really look into it for whatever reason. And it finally came on my radar again, like all of us, this happens, Mm -hmm. came on my radar again in 2015. And I was just in the right frame of mind. And I remembered the money changers and started delving into Bitcoin and going down the rabbit hole and learning about this and thinking, oh my God this solves the problem this is Mm. what i was learning about when i was 17 years old with central banking that this could be the antidote and it's tech so it's cool you know let me try to experiment with it a little bit and um so that's what got me into it but the money changers i i gotta tell you it was there's certain things in retrospect when i look back at it that are a little bit not i don't know if entirely accurate but maybe i disagree with a couple of the insertions, but that really woke, uh, made me realize, you know, uh, the the issue with our financial system. And then coupled to mm. that, uh, another big influence on me was, I don't know if you ever watched the documentaries uh, by the BBC presenter by the name of James Burke. I uh, used to have a series called Connections. I used to watch them all the time. And he talks about the connection. I think he's the one who discussed the taller, actually. Mm. Um, and... In connections, it explains it's basically the evolution of technology and evolution of the world, and how this whole myth of the Eureka moment one guy has one idea that changes the world. No, no, everything is evolutionary, and people build upon other people's discoveries, which is what Bitcoin is, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Satoshi took the work of people who are yeah. working on this for 30 years and figured out the most ingenious way to package it. Yeah, um, so those two things, James Burke's documentaries. Uh, the money changers, those things together gave me this foundation of understanding. We have a problem with our monetary system. Uh, my brother, my other brother runs a pension fund. So finances um, and financial markets were always a topic of conversation in my family growing up. I have that privilege, I guess you'd say. So I understand the markets. So all those things together are what uh, allowed me to converge on on Bitcoin. And look, I wasn't convinced in the beginning. Everybody, I think, is skeptical in the beginning, but no matter how many times I tried to disprove the hypothesis of Satoshi's white paper, I just can't. That's right. No matter how many times, nothing works. Yeah. that I mean, that is the key point, right? It's that no one knows how to turn it off. No one knows how to stop it. So therefore you have to basically get on the train. Um, I had a pretty similar journey actually that I had discovered the evils of central banking prior to the invention of Bitcoin. My path was through the book, the creature from Jekyll Island. Okay. And then just like you described when I finally, I, I didn't really start to look into Bitcoin until like 16, 17. And it was then that I realized, Oh my goodness, this is the solution to that gigantic problem called central banking that is you know i still think it is the number one problem in the world um it's at the root of everything right it's the root go ahead you you notice where we were the same age 
You were 16, 17. I was oh, 16, 17. Well, I'm sorry. It was right? 2016, 17. Oh, okay. I got into Bitcoin. <laughs> I might be a little bit older than you. <laughs> no, no, no. So, I thought you were reading. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. I, well, I read Creature from Jekyll Island when I was like oh, 19 yeah, or 20, 18, 19 or 20, somewhere in that range. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then subsequently discovered Bitcoin was the solution to that problem. I had like, I looked into the That's abyss was very disheartened by it, but also there was no solution at the time. It's like you read the creature from Jekyll Island, you're like, well, this is a complete disaster. Like, what are we going to do about this? And Full disclosure, no... I've never read it. So, <laughs> I mean, assuming it's similar, I've never seen the documentary you saw, but basically paints central banking as the most corrupt institution in the world, right? And it runs the world. Um, extremely problematic, right? And yet there was no solution for it. And then stumbled upon Bitcoin as a solution for that. And it was like this eureka moment. Um, so yeah, interesting that we kind of had sort of somewhat similar paths, different, different, yet somewhat similar. You mentioned you spent some time in Colombia, and you observed, you, you hit me with this new term as we we're talking offline, political entryism. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about your time in South America and define for us what political entryism is and how you saw that unfolding during your yeah. time down there? Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, I first moved to Colombia in 2003. I, uh, yeah, I was working for Harley Davidson. I was uh, a project manager. And one of those deals where you start getting more and more departments, more and more things to uh, to deal with, but but no more money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was getting a little frustrated. I remember I was driving home uh, with a friend, talking to a friend of mine, and saying, you know, I think I'm just going to take six months off. Uh, I finally want to learn Spanish properly, like I speak a little bit, but I really want to learn it. And my friend, who's very very successful, says to me, "Where are you going to go?" I listed off a few countries. I'm not sure, and he suggested, "Why don't you go to Colombia?" So what are you crazy? Why wouldn't go to Colombia? Uh, isn't that dangerous? And he said, no, no, no. I have a supplier there. He's in the medical industry. Uh, and this guy's afraid of his own shadow. And he said, I go to Colombia all the time. It's the best place I've been so far. It's like new, open sort of thing. So he convinced me. And I remember I had a, a Mazda Speed Miata that I used to track on the weekends. I was driving home. And he said, here, call this guy Manuel. Uh, and I called Manuel because at that time you could still talk while you were driving. <laughs> and he uh, he said, yeah, okay, let me connect you. Some girl called me, uh, Tatiana. And by, 11, by 12 o'clock that night, I had a plane ticket and a place to stay for the following Tuesday. And I think this was on a Wednesday. And I just decided, all right, I'm going to go on a whim. Hmm. And this was in 2003. And we hear, I mean, you know George Gammon. I've been watching his mm-hmm. whiteboard videos, I think, since he started. And uh, Colombia today is a completely different country than it was. It was, I mean, you can judge just by the Medellin airport. I was, I, this when I was just in Medellin in April or May when I was coming back, I went to the washroom. And the washroom in Medellin in the airport now is, it's all marble and electronic sinks and looks like, you know, it's very kind of la moda. It's very, very nice and classy. Mm. When I moved there, there was no toilet paper and toilet seats and everything was concrete. Like it was a third world country, third world country. Mm. And uh, so it's completely changed. You know, Gammon talks about Provenza frequently. 
Provenza didn't exist when I was there. There was only Parque Lleras, and Parque Lleras was just a place for families and a couple of places for nightlife, um, you know, a couple of clubs. There was Club Blue, and that was about it, and a few restaurants. It was a completely different place. And so I, you know, I stayed there for quite a while, came back, went to Miami, came back. Like, I've lived all over the place. Um and I always go back frequently. One of my closest friends lives there. That's why I try to go there once a year, if I can, at least. Um, and one of the times I was there, which was in 2015, I believe it was just it was just for just before the election that I ran in, or is just after? I can't remember exactly. It might have been just before, you know, six months before. But anyways, I was out for dinner with uh, this friend who I mentioned, and one of our common friends who very successful was a stockbroker uh now is a big uh flowers exporting business very very successful plugged into po things politically when i'm in politics in colombia i don't want to hear about politics i'm talk about it just, you know and he um he said to me we're out for dinner he said i can ask you something why do you have why are your uh, your part of your members of parliament in canada from the liberal party and he said i don't know what that is but you have a liberal party with mps who are coming here meddling in our politics and he said what are you talking about he explained you know people are coming down we have they're trying to do a negotiation with as he called them uh the terrorists from farc you know the the communist guerrilla guerrillas that were kidnapping and killing people for 40 years and running the drug trade he said your government keeps trying to meet with them and bring a peace deal that none of us want to insert them in the government. Like they're basically dead in Colombia. Why would you do that? Like, I don't know. I can't tell you. And it turns out that the person that the Trudeau government, I think it was before, Trudeau was leader at the very least, that they were negotiating with to bring this peace deal and bring FARC into the government was the head of... Um, he was head of one of the uh, paramilitary groups. It's complicated. FARC paramilitaries, it's different. It, it, that's a whole other conversation in itself. But, uh, you know, revolutionaries, sometimes communists, sometimes not. They're the drug trade, whatever. And they were negotiating with many other people, including this guy, to bring them into the government. And this particular gentleman, uh, I call him Hugo Chavez Jr., is uh, became a member of parliament and just became president of Colombia when I was there wow. in um, in April and May of this year. So I, I recently heard a guy start to refer to World Economic Forum, which is typically called WEF. Mm -hmm. He started calling them these mother wuffers. So I'm going to use that <laughs> term because I really like it. Is mm -hmm. this a case of mother wuffer infiltration? And, and other governments where they're actually getting people in positions of power as they blatantly brag about? Is this a case of that? I don't know. What I can tell you, what I've, I've learned, you know, politically while I was ignorantly trying to get involved in politics for a while to try to usher in positive change and mm -hmm. learn some very mm -hmm. harsh lessons about how it actually works. Uh, we have this problem in Western politics where lobbyists control everything. It's all mm -hmm. controlled by lobbyists. That's why there was no leadership amongst any politicians to go and step out in front of the police and say, go home, we're in charge. This requires a parliamentary uh, solution. 
because it's controlled by lobbyists. Now, what is lobbying? That's legalized bribery. It's yeah. all of this. Yeah. Right? So um, I, I think sometimes people try to oversimplify. You know, we all naturally tend to do that. The, the black and white, there's uh, one good and evil, just one guy at the top who controls everything. And I think what I've learned, things are a lot more complex. Uh, bribery is definitely a part of it. There's no question. Um, is that directly attributed to the WF? And maybe some elements of it mm. for sure. Uh, they're definitely trying to influence people, but there's also sorts of other groups that are trying to do the same. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party as well is engaged in political entryism around mm. the world. And, you know, just to discuss that, you I forgot to mention that. What is political entryism? It's when you have like a group, uh, on, let's say on a university campus, it happens all the time, where you have the vegan group. And all of a sudden, somebody joins the vegan group who is a Marxist. But they won't say anything. They'll join the vegan group. They'll be part of it. Uh, they'll work very hard. They'll work up the chain. And then they'll become vice president of the campus vegan group. And then they'll decide, oh, well, you know, we, you know where there are lots of vegans? There's lots of vegans in communist countries because they don't have meat there. So you know what? We need to embody the values of Marx in our uh, vegan activism. activism. Mm. And that's how you get uh, vegan groups on campus talking about uh, Karl Marx and communism. That's wow. political entryism. So they do this around the world on university campuses through think tanks. That's a big thing. Mm. Uh, my business on university campus we printed a lot of the reports for the university that were presented to the government, uh, the municipal government, to implement uh, municipal laws. And they were all bunk. Like you, we would, me and my assistant, who was Russian, who knows corruption, we would go through, re read some of the stuff I was printing. Well, you don't read in detail, but you just look at their synopsis and whatever. They would send these kids out to do these... Um, uh, surveys of communities to say, oh, do you want, you know, they would load all these loaded questions. Like, do you want bicycle lanes or do you want people in the community to suffer? And uh, they would ask like 10 people. They fudged the numbers. The students would put it together into a project. It's all nonsense. And then they would submit it through a lobby firm to the municipal government and then it would become law. Like, that's how this system is working right now. So I don't know, like the the World Economic Forum, let's assume they collapsed. Would anything change? I think they it might slow things down a little bit because there's so much money being pumped into it. Mm. Uh, but I think it's more of a forum for people in big business to meet each other, whether they're corrupt or not, uh, to engage. I think half of them, like I know a couple of very wealthy people who've been asked to go. They see it as a bunch of used car salesmen. They don't think it's terribly credible. But my concern is with the politicians that give it the time of day, right? Mm -hmm. And we also tend to look at the, um, one of the things I've talked about frequently, we look at the billionaire class and we're we're doing what, we're, we're falling down this collectivist mindset that we need to resist. Are Are all billionaires thinking the same thing? No, I don't think so. I don't think... Bill Gates and Elon Musk think the same way. I think they have different worldviews. And I think we need to focus on individuals as opposed to groups of people. So I'm sure there are people that exploit the WEF. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are people who adhere to the WF. 
But would things change if the WF uh, was eradicated? Yeah, they probably slow down, but there's enough people that have brainwa- been brainwashed or are opportunists that still adhere to that worldview that would continue to try to pro- promulgate this worldview amongst many countries around the world. And I think what we need to deal with is the psychology of people and try to undo uh, the brainwashing or at least Mm. not allow other people to be brainwashed into this Mm postmodernist, simplified oppressor versus oppressed oppressed worldview. Mm -hmm. I think that's where we fight it. And if more people didn't buy into that underlying philosophy, then the WF would have very limited powers. Yeah, wonderfully said. Um, and I, I do think Bitcoin does go a long way to helping resolve this dynamic. Because oh, yeah. you can't, sure. like, you know, this trope has been recited for years and years. We need to get money out of politics, get money out of politics. Obviously, just impossible, right? So long as humans are self-interested and like to trade, then money and politics are going to be intertwined. But what you can do with Bitcoin is like you kind of you take the politics out of money to a large extent, right? It's monetary policy is no longer a matter. It's no longer a political matter, right? It's just fixed in place. It's a proverbial level playing field. You can't can't tilt it in your favor to support your your agenda or whatever. Um, and I think yeah. too the longer term consequences of Bitcoin. Uh, of being disruptive to the central bank. You know, if you don't have a central bank, then you have a lot less social engineering because essentially an institution that can just print money and then fund the uh, propagation of whatever narrative they choose. um, That's, that's the source of a lot of social engineering in the world. So if you remove that one institution of theft, then all of a sudden you'd have people, uh, much more capable of self-organizing rather than being uh, pumped full of these false narratives, trying to be driven towards certain conclusions or actions. Well, I also think, you know, um, the pseudo-anonymous nature of Bitcoin has strong value in it. There's no question. Um, I'm going to get back to that in a second. Let me jump over to CBDC for a second, because we all are worried about the threat of a CBDC. And I still know people in government. I know people who are in political parties. They know I'm not a partisan, but they'll talk to me and ask me my thoughts, which is I'm very, <laughs> I'm very honored that they care what I think. Mm. Um, but, you know, I know people are worried about CBDCs and I keep telling my friends uh, in government, I'm like, no, no, it's great. I can't wait to see how the money is flowing into Justin Trudeau's personal CBDC account and where it's all coming from. Great, right? The strongest form of protest is amplification. So great. You want CBDCs? Great. We're going to I can't wait till all the, the hacker community around the world decides that, oh, look at this. Our world leaders, Klaus has a CBDC, which is centralized. Maybe we should start hacking that and find out where Klaus is getting all his money. (laughs) I don't think we're going to see CBDCs for that reason, because it puts too much of a magnifying glass on the people who are corrupt. Mm. However, in the Bitcoin side, one of the problems we had with the convoy, I don't blame anybody for this. Like, I understand it was it was a learning experience for all of us, for all of us. The Bitcoin community, as I saw it, was very obsessed Uh, for a couple of reasons, just out of interest, and they wanted to make sure people were honest. 
that they were obsessed with where is every Satoshi going and they wanted to monitor it. And this apparently, I mean, I didn't see this caribou and them were all dealing with it because there was a push back and forth. They're doing spaces together, trying to figure out what to do. But they wanted to know where every Satoshi went, how it was being spent and all that stuff, where it's being distributed to, which wallets and whatever. And all that did was help the government mm. because all of that stuff being public allowed the government to trace it, which is mm. why in this class action suit, there's a list of, I don't even know now, 100, 200 wallets or something that they want frozen because of it. I think it's mm. very important that we move over more towards privacy in the Bitcoin community. If you're going to, and I know this, people don't like this, but if you're going to donate to a cause, somebody said this in one of the, the Bitcoin rooms, if you're going to donate to a cause, you donate and you have to have some trust that people are going to act in good faith. And there's always shysters and scam artists everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. We did our best. But the problem is if we always put a magnifying glass on any protest around the world, left or right, doesn't matter. And if we allow all that data to be traced and visible and share with everybody, you, all you're doing is helping these authoritarian governments. And that's one mm. of the lessons we learned in the Freedom uh, Convoy. So I'm a big proponent of we need more privacy in Bitcoin. And sometimes it's a double-edged sword. I get it. But having seen what governments did did to us during this episode, I would implore people within Bitcoin to to make privacy even more of a priority. And I think if you do that, now you have a significant hedge against CBDCs because mm -hmm. now you can say to these corrupt politicians, well, um, not only does it have all the positive traits of Bitcoin um, and being decentralized, nobody controls it, whatever, but it's also private. Right, And I know there's some legal, uh, there's legislation challenges around that in different jurisdiction, jurisdictions. I get that. Maybe there's a way we can scale it. Maybe people have the option if they want their, uh, of a different level of privacy they mm -hmm. want for their wallet. Maybe that's something we can do. And yeah. then the last, the last thing I wanted to ask you about this is, because we brought this up in a couple of rooms, people ask me, you know, uh, because they're worried about Bitcoin being regulated, they're worried about CBDCs and all that sort of stuff. And my perspective, I can't remember where I got this from, but this was a, a very interesting and salient point, I think, and, and predictive, which is I'm not all that worried because I think what's going to happen, uh, knowing how governments behave, that at some point, uh, the Western governments that are um, adversarial towards Bitcoin are going to understand, as they've admitted years ago, they can't ban this stuff. But what can they do? They want access to people's money because they want to make sure they're not tax cheats. They want to make sure that everything is above board and honest and AML and anti-terrorism. Okay, fine, whatever. They just so, want to make sure that they can generate revenue on it via that's taxation. Right. That, that's the rest, of that, the rest of that is just moral camouflage. That's true. That's, that's true. all You're bullshit. Right. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. But so what are they going to do? I think what governments will do, and this would be smart for them to do, Look, you and I know Bitcoin, we get it, we know how to do cold storage, we know how to run nodes and all that sort of stuff, but most people don't, and most people don't care and never will, right? They don't understand how our existing financial system mm -hmm. runs, let alone Bitcoin. So what the smart governments will do is they'll say, okay, well, we're going to allow for regulated FDIC-insured Bitcoin wallets. 
And we're going to allow the banking sector to issue these FDIC Bitcoin wallets. And maybe you'll get you know, 2% interest in fiat on your Bitcoin if you hold it. Mm-hmm. So then the banking sector is going to say, right. okay, great. Uh, we'll accept this. We'll bring this in. So for the normies who just can't get over the technical hurdle, they'll have the infrastructure of a centralized financial system that you and I want nothing to do with, but they'll have it. And the rest of us will be able to self-custodial and then everybody's happy. I think that's yeah. where we're going to go to, but maybe no, I'm wrong. No, that's a great point. The the use of yield to attract Bitcoin into centralized custody right. is very likely to be employed. Um, this is this, yeah, it's the same thing, you know, Celsius was using, right? To get Bitcoin onto their <laughs> exactly. exchange. It's the same it, <laughs> government centralized custody <laughs> scam is not that different mechanically from the, the government centralized custody scam uh, yeah. or Celsius and government. So yeah, that's an interesting take. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. Now you, you're doing a little bit of public speaking, I think this year, you said you'll be speaking at, at Bitcoin Canada. Um, uh, yes. Can you tell me a little yeah. bit about that? So I spoke at, um, uh, Bitcoin Miami, which was such an honor and shout out to Greg Foss and Jeff Booth and a whole bunch of other people for inviting me down there. And I got a lot of time for those guys. I really do. They mm-hmm. really, you talk about people who are doing a lot for Bitcoin. Yeah, they are. Uh, if you don't, if you don't follow those two guys on Twitter, you got to. And Foss's rants are epic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I ended up, uh, I was on a panel, um, Wartime Bitcoin uh, at Bitcoin Miami. And I was asked uh, recently to speak at Bitcoin Canada or Bitcoin Toronto. It's going to be the first big uh, Bitcoin conference in Canada this year in June. Uh, I did speak at uh, Mass Adoption in November. I think they put the video online. I think I've retweeted it a couple of times. That's where I met Jason Lowry when I went back. I'm in regular communication with them. They want to do something in the summer as well that I might help out with. Um, And then I just get regular. I mean, I've always gotten, since I got involved in politics many years ago, because some of the things I've been vocal on, I've always been gotten requests to speak for whatever reason. And uh, so it's not just limited to the Bitcoin community, but I do want to focus uh, on Bitcoin because I've had, I think, some relative success with orange pilling regular people who aren't techies that really didn't care about it. But now they see the value and they know there's somebody who's kind of a maybe I'm half techie, half normie because I'm not a programmer by any means. Hmm. My programming skills are brutal, (laughs) brutal. So I just gave up on it. Um, but yeah, I'm going to do my best. So, uh, I've, I've, I've had some other people, uh, just send inquiries to ask me to speak in different places. So if anybody is in, has a Bitcoin group anywhere in the United States, I've told them what I'll do is I'll tell my carrier because at the end of the day, I'm an owner operator and I own a truck. Uh, I can get dispatches to different cities around the United States. And if anybody wants to come or you want me to speak or do a book signing or whatever, then uh, I'll make sure to get a dispatch in your city and I'll come visit and we'll all hang out, talk about Bitcoin, talk about freedom and talk about how we can get more people into this ecosystem. That's really cool. Uh, I'm glad you're doing that. And, you know, thank you for just working to spread this message. Um, I know it's not easy. We have a lot of entrenched interest arrayed against us, but, um, you know, 
the past couple of years, although they have been pretty pretty rough on freedom, I think we're starting to see the the positive side of it now, right? Like people, there's a different perspective. Like you described your friends that don't understand Bitcoin at all, but now they hold some just after seeing the freedom convoy take place. Yeah, right? there's there's this this self destructive element to authoritarianism that I think is starting to show its head again. And uh, this is where the work people like yourself are doing really starts to shine. So um, thank you. Well, you know, every um, every couple of days, uh, I live stream on YouTube and on Locals. So honkingforfreedom.locals.com if you want to join and help support me in all of this. Or on YouTube, uh, youtube.com forward slash BJD online. And the reason I did is, I, I'll tell you what I learned during the, the Freedom Convoy. I learned the power of communicating love and compassion on people. Mm. Wow, boy, do people, especially after what we had been going through for a couple of years, people really gravitated towards it. And you know, I mentioned before, I'm an optimist. I'm really positive about, there's gonna be bumps in the road, there always are. Every generation thinks the world is collapsing around them and we always figure things out. And so what I do, you know, I usually do my streams before I grab my bag and my laptop, go to my truck and drive down to the US. I um, I speak to, you know, this small group of people that's growing a bit. Some are Bitcoiners, some aren't Bitcoiners about some of these political issues, but some of the good things, all the good things that have happened. And I'm really optimistic about where things are going, man. Like I'm seeing regular people who knew nothing about Bitcoin getting into Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. I see regular people who really took freedom for granted now understanding the importance of freedom or the fact that in Canada, Americans, this may be a little bit uh, difficult to understand, but we've all been told our entire lives here that people from Quebec hate people from Alberta. And the first thing I saw when I arrived in Ottawa during the Freedom Convoy, firstly, was no masks for the first mm. time in months because masks were mandated. And I saw people from Quebec walking across the border into Ontario, because right on the border, up to Parliament Hill, meeting with Albertan truckers, hugging each other. They had signs that said freedom and liberté. And they were all coming together in a way I've never seen in Canada before, so much so that the second person I did an interview with in Ottawa uh, she's a French journalist. She's a Quebec journalist who works for a French publication. At the end of the interview, I asked her, how are you feeling about the Freedom Convoy? And she said to me, I'll tell you something. I used to be a separatist. She's a Quebec separatist, um, anti-Canada, anti all of that stuff. She said, I used to be a separatist. And then I saw the trucks driving across the country and I realized I'm not alone. I shouldn't feel alone. And there are other people that are coming here to try to save all of us. She said, I went and I bought my first Canadian flag ever. Mm. And I think that's the spirit we can have within Bitcoin as well. We just got to be patient with people. We can't, we shouldn't be aggressive and combative with people who don't understand it, don't get it because eventually something is going to enter their lives and Bitcoin is going to solve something for those people that's right what, yeah. right whether it's yeah. impoverished people who have the inability to save and are buying appliances because they don't have a store of value or an authoritarian government there's something for everybody in it 
It's a great way to look at it. You know, Bitcoin solves so many problems that everyone eventually is going to encounter one of these problems and that will be their gateway into embracing it. And 100%, yeah. ideally, uh, us Bitcoiners should be there to embrace them with open arms. Totally. Benjamin, this has been a heck of a conversation, man. I really appreciate your work. And uh, I hope everyone will go and check out your book, Honking for Freedom. And uh, just to close out, could you yeah. please let my audience know where they can find you on the internet? Uh, yeah. So on Twitter, um, BJ, uh, at BJ Dichter. Um, locals, honkingforfreedom.locals.com. On YouTube, I explained before, just search BJ Dichter on YouTube. Um, the most recent thing is, oh, and to buy the book, go to honkingforfreedom.com. Wherever you can buy it, it'll be available there, along with many of the interviews I did and some of the photos. And the last thing we're working on now is because there's so many people wanting to come together. Uh, there's a Honking for Freedom uh, Discord. And the Honking for Freedom Discord has a right-wing room, a left-wing room, an I-don't-know room. So for all of us can start to talk to each other. It's not there for the trolls. It's the, it's set up by some people very left-wing, by the way, but who are supporters of the Freedom Convoy who want to be able to talk to people they disagree with. And we've laid out these channels. And also there's a channel in that, um, in that Discord called hashtag Bitcoin. So for those people, whether you're left or right, whatever, but you value the um, the importance of freedom and individualism, you have not only this great community we're trying to build for us all to talk, but there's also a Bitcoin space for people who just want to slowly dip their feet in and uh, and start to figure it out together. And we're there to help you. Awesome. Benjamin, thank you so much. I appreciate it, brother.